So Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7, and I'm going to read uh, through verse 16. It's kind of a unit. I want to read the, as a matter of fact, I'm jumping in a little bit in the middle of the unit, but uh, it's, a, it's at a hinge point, and I want us to uh, take a look at that passage. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, therefore it says, he who ascended on high led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the, the body you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the country that you've given us that we can gather without fear uh, to study and to uh, investigate and to look into your word God, we ask that you give us ears to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit, and I ask that you would give me a tongue to speak that word which you've ordained for this body as people in this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Now, we are at the tail end of our series that we really began uh, in early June that we called Summer in the Spirit. Matter of fact, I think we began it in May, Summer in the Spirit, and we're going to preach three more messages, including this one. Uh, to kind of tie that off. Of course, I could keep preaching about the Spirit of God for weeks and weeks, uh, but we want to shift, and, and we don't want to belabor the issue any more than we already have. These last three weeks are going to be specifically talking about gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, most people, most Pentecostals, when they think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they think about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the, the so-called charismatic gifts or miraculous gifts are listed, but really that's only one of several lists. There are three primary lists. There are some other, uh, I would call them lesser lists, that are, uh, that are sort of um, uh, mixtures of these other three main lists, these other three main lists. The three main lists that I'm going to be talking about over the next three weeks are uh, the ministry gifts, that's what we're talking about today from Ephesians 4. And then the miraculous gifts, that's 1 Corinthians 12. And then what we call motivational gifts, and that's in Romans chapter 12. These are three different lists, three different kind of gift lists. And these gifts uh, all work together uh, for the glory of God and for the ministry of the church. And so today, uh, I wanted to focus on this list first because uh, these, uh, these gifts, these ministry gifts help us to understand sort of the structure of the church and, and gives the framework in which the other gifts operate. 
right? So it's not, it's, it's kind of a chicken or an egg type thing, and I kind of came down here. It's not the order in which the New Testament was written, uh, but it is sort of understood that these gifts are sort of uh, previous. Okay, they're foundational in many ways. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul elsewhere talks about these gifts, uh, these roles, these offices, if you will, being foundational. Many people refer to this list, the core of which is found in uh, verse 11. It says, and he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Uh, they call this the five-fold ministry. Some people argue that it's really a four-fold ministry, and it all depends on how you understand that little word, and, at the end, right, that stands between shepherds and teachers. This has to do with some technical aspects of Greek grammar that I'm not going to weigh you down with, but the simple uh, understanding is that you can understand that and as connective or separating, right? So it could be that he's saying shepherds and teachers, two different things, or shepherds and teachers, meaning one unified thing, and it's just ambiguous. There's really no way to tell, and the fact, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, right, because we're talking about these roles, but just so you understand why some people call it a five-fold ministry, some people call it four-fold, at the end of the day, it's all talking about the same thing. What we're discussing here is Jesus giving these gifts to people and then giving these people to the church, right? So it's a gifting that Jesus himself gives. And it talks about this, and the image that is given here uh, is something that's a little bit lost on us. This passage, as it goes in from verses 7 up to verse 10, is a little bit mysterious. There's a lot of different people who have come up with different interpretations. But the people at the time would have understood what it was. In those days, Roman generals and later the emperors, to celebrate a victory over their enemy, would celebrate something called a triumph. It was a, it was a very elaborate parade. They used white horses. They used a chariot and so forth. And at the very beginning of that parade, which followed a very specific route through the streets of Rome, went through a gate that was preserved for that. Nobody could use the gate except when this celebration was allowed. It would pass all these pagan temples and it would end up before the temple of Jupiter. They would, they would uh, line the streets and and these parades were known for their gifts. The whole thing began with, um, the, uh, with the, the triumphant general or emperor would be in his chariot. And the first thing that he would do, the very first thing that he would do before doing anything else, is he would turn in the chariot to his leaders, to his officers and to his soldiers who would walk behind the chariot. And he would give them special gifts. He would give them promotions at that point, or he would give them special gifts from the plunder that was taken from the enemy. And then they would begin the parade, and they would parade their enemies right before them. And they would they would uh, they would give gifts. They would they would give out gifts from the chariot. Anybody ever been in a parade where there's a float? And uh, they're throwing candy or whatever. That's a very, very old idea that goes all the way back to the Romans. That whole idea of floats and so forth. And uh, people standing and waving at everybody. Well, who is she? I don't know. She's, you know, but, well, you know, everybody, this sort of thing. That, that, that idea is very old. And that's the image that's being used here is that Jesus 
is cast. The, the, the Ephesians would have understood immediately what this language was. The, they would have understood that, that Paul is likening Jesus to that victorious leader. And the first thing that he's doing is he's giving these powerful, powerful gifts to his officers who are participants in that victory. And so he's saying here, instead of giving out money or uh, promotions or whatnot, he's giving gifts that in turn will be gifts. And the gifts that he gives are apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, pastor or shepherd, and teacher. Now, what are these gifts? Before I, I, I get into really the core of what I want to talk about, and I want to tell you, I could preach on this passage for weeks. But just, just to kind of get the lowdown, what are these five gifts? I was thinking of a simple way uh, <laughs> excuse me, to illustrate this, and I thought about a fire. I thought about the fire of the Holy Spirit in the midst of God's people. And I thought about the fire of the Holy Spirit coming and resting on God's people on the day of Pentecost. And so I'm going to use that illustration, that metaphor of fire. So in relation to fire, in, in the fire of the Holy Spirit in the midst of God's people, what is the apostle? The apostle is the fire starter. He's the one who starts the apostle, or she. There's a passage in Romans pretty clearly indicates that there is a, there's a female apostle in the early church. So you, you, uh, you get a situation, apostles, apostle in Greek literally means sent. Literally means sent. Now that doesn't mean your mailman is an apostle because he's sent by the post office. To, it's, it's a very specific use of the word sent. Apostle sent one, is somebody who is sent to be a pioneer, to start something that, that wasn't there before. The Apostle Paul in, Act, in a, a Romans chapter 15 says, I make it my ambition uh, to build not on somebody else's foundation. I'm going where the gospel has not gone. So there's a pioneer aspect to apostleship. But there's something else because it pretty clearly indicates that there are apostles that were functioning where churches already were. Apostles seem to be sort of ministers to ministers. They are sort of shepherds of shepherds. They're overseers that help coordinate and they see the big picture of things. Now, apostle, among all of these offices, apostle is one of the trickiest terms. And a lot of people get very, very nervous about the use of the term apostle. I will remember one time I was in Ecuador, and this was about 15 years ago, and I was staying in the house of another missionary. And um, at the time, and still a little bit, there was a movement going on that was called the Neo-Apostolic Movement. And there were a lot of people running around calling themselves apostles. And they came up with rather arbitrary ideas to determine what is an apostle. If you have a church of over this many people, you're an apostle. Uh, and so there are a lot of people calling themselves, and I got a phone call, uh, and it was a guy who was speaking in English, and he said, I'm trying to get a hold of this missionary. And I said, well, he's not here. He's not in the country right now. I happen to be staying in his house, and that's why I'm answering the phone. I said, can I ask who's calling? And he said, I'm Apostle Paul Jones. And I said, oh, good to, you know, wow. Uh, nice to meet you, uh, Paul. That's Apostle Paul. Oh, okay, Sorry. You know, this type of thing, you know. And uh, he, he was very insistent upon that. So that's brought in some confusion that I think needs to be clarified. 
Some people argue in response to that, that's ridiculous. There were only 12 apostles. There were only 12. So anybody calling themselves an apostle today is ridiculous. You know, I was talking recently with, uh, with Steve Day, and he said, uh, I forget what we're talking about, Steve, but he, he was saying, boy, sometimes it seems like if, uh, the only time we're uh, properly traveling down the road is when we're going between ditch and ditch. You know, I mean, we're in this ditch, and then we manage to get onto the road, and the only time we're on the road is we're traveling to the other ditch. So it's, it's, it's an error to say, uh, just at the drop of a ha- I think, um, you know, just to throw around the title apostle. Well, so-and-so is an apostle. I've seen people, they have it on their business card, you know, apostle and so forth, and that sort of, I think that's a mistake. I think that's excessive. Um, But I also think it's a mistake to say there are only 12 and it's closed, and there's no more apostles. Why do I think that's a mistake? Well, for one, it seems pretty clear in the text that Paul is putting apostle in this context uh, together with these other offices. How many know there's been more than just a few evangelists or pastors, right? So it seems like the title of apostle is open to more than just the 12. Not only that, in the New Testament, there are multiple people that are referred to as apostles that are not part of the 12, right? The apostle Paul is the big one. He wasn't part of the 12. People try to make him that way, but he wasn't. He wasn't one of the 12. Uh, uh, He refers to Barnabas as an apostle. Timothy, Silas were called apostles. Little bitty Epaphroditus, uh, the messenger of the Philippians to Paul. Uh, in in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul calls him an apostle. I mean, people try to fudge that translation, but it's, it's what it says. So apostle, it seems like, so you say, well, does the 12 count? Is there importance to the 12? There is importance to the 12. So we might say there are apostles capital A, and there are apostles lowercase a. Now, there are no capitals or under uh, lowercase in the text, but this, the, the spirit of that declaration is there, that the original 12 had a unique and non-repeatable office. They had walked with Jesus, they had witnessed the resurrection, and every single one of them died a martyr except for John, and they tried to kill him. And it's their testimony that forms part of the foundation of the church. You say, well, a lot of people have died for their faith. Yeah, but they died for their faith thinking it was the truth. I'm talking about Muslims or other people who who die for a lie. The apostles are unique in that what they died for, they were in a unique position to know that it was the truth. Witnesses to the resurrection. They would have known whether it's the lie, a lie or the truth, And they died declaring Jesus is alive and he's Lord. And nobody dies for a lie. Nobody dies for a lie. You know, one of the best explanations of that that I've heard was actually actually written by Chuck Colson. He was one one of the primary players in the Watergate scandal years ago. And in his, he later, through that ordeal, he came to know the Lord. He spent time in jail for corruption, government corruption. And he came to the Lord, and he wrote in his book, Loving God, he, he describes how the Watergate scandal, how that whole conspiracy collapsed like a house of cards within minutes. How it just completely fell apart because everybody was trying to save their own skins. But the apostles all held true. That's the 12. That's unique. 
But there are lesser apostles, we might say. These are pioneers of the faith that go out and exercise apostolic ministry. They're over other ministers. They, they, they carry on a pioneer aspect, and they carry a particular authority with them. It's an authority to bless. It's not so much a, a heavy-handed governing authority, but it's a ministry authority that they carry. So that's the apostle. Uh, the other ones will be a little bit briefer, I promise you. A prophet, uh, if the apostle starts the fire, the prophet is concerned about the purity of the flame. The prophet is one that carries an office that doesn't just have to do with foretelling, meaning predicting the future, but it has to do with foretelling. It has to do with confronting God's people. It has to do with comforting God's people in difficult times and confronting them where they're jumping the rails, where they're going off. That office was very strong in the Old Testament, but you know what? It continues in the New Testament too. I personally believe that uh, Pastor Ron Brown, who ministered here uh, this past uh, January, I believe he operates in the office of a prophet, in the office of prophet. Now, the office of a ministry and a gift are two different things. So somebody who prophesies doesn't necessarily mean they're a prophet. doesn't mean they occupy the office of a prophet. But, but people who occupy the office of a prophet are going to flow in certain gifts. I'll talk about that Later, So you've got the, the one who starts the fire is the apostle. The prophet is concerned with the purity of the flame. If you're, if you're wanting a pure flame that's not putting off a lot of black smoke, you've got to be careful what you're burning, right? You've got to concern yourself with that, and that's important. The third is the evangelist. Now, the evangelist, uh, that word evangelist comes from two words in the Greek. The prefix is you, which, E-U, which means good. Good, like a eulogy is literally a good word that is spoken, right? Uh, a euphemism is a good way to put something that may not be so good. And a, a, an evangelist is li literally a euangelist, right? You is good. Angelos, where we get our word angel, means message. message. It's a good message or the good news. An evangelist is somebody who brings good news. They're one who stokes the fire. They're the ones who, 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 who put, the, put, put more fuel on the fire. They're a fire stoker. If you've ever been under a real powerful event, and I'm going to tell you right now, I wish I were an evangelist. The grass is always greener. You know, you always wish, you know, when I was young, I had curly hair. I had. I had curly hair. And I did everything I could to try to straighten my hair. Why? Because the people with straight hair, they have it made, and I have this curly hair that's out of control. And then I'd see guys, guys come to school, and they got a perm because they couldn't stand their straight hair, and they got, what's with that? Grass is always greener. The Lord solved the whole quandary for me, just <laughs> solved it dead out. All right, so I wish I were an evangelist because evangelists move the people. Right? That's what evangelism, a, lot, a big mistake, and I'll talk about this later, is kind of 
the core of what I'm trying to say about these offices. But we make the mistake of thinking an evangelist primarily, his ministry primarily, or his or her ministry primarily, is to unbelievers. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The primary ministry of an evangelist is to believers, is to stoke the fire, is to, is to build them up, is to fire them up. So the evangelist stokes the fire. And then you get the pastor-teacher. The pastor-teacher. The pastor-teacher is interested in the long burn. Is how long that fire is going to last. Right? And the strength of the heat that it gives out. So the shepherd, a shepherd gathers. That's what shepherds always concerned about. Shepherds always, where are they? Where are they? What's going on? Where do they go? Now, evangelist is like, praise God, there's more coming in. You're like, and the, and the shepherd the whole time is like, yeah, but brother, yeah, you know, Jeff's not here, you know. Well, Jeff's, Jeff's been sick, but he's at home, right? So I talked to Kim. Kim said, he's home, he's resting. Okay, good. Right, that's the shepherd, Okay, now a teacher is, goes hand in glove with that, whether, whichever way you look at it. A teacher is an explainer. Does anybody notice I'm a little bit of an explainer? Right? You ask me a little question, I'm like, no, there are two ways to look at <laughs> it. So <laughs> that's just, right? So I bet some of you wish I were an evangelist too. All right, we'll go on on it. All right, now how are these gifts? How are these gifts from Jesus? Jesus gives these gifts from his own being, from his own person. How does he do so? Because Jesus embodies every single one of these offices. Every one of them. Even apostle, even apostle. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says, He is the apostle and high priest of our calling. The prophet. Is Jesus a prophet? Absolutely. Right? Acts chapter 7, Stephen in his great swan song speech right before he's martyred, he says that he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says that God will raise up a prophet from among the people like unto me. That's Jesus. Jesus is the prophet. If anybody ever remembers the Pharisees going to John the Baptist and saying, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? We immediately are like, who's the prophet? Well, that was part of the hope at that time. It was part of their messianic hope. They were quoting that passage from Deuteronomy 18.15 about the hope of the prophet. Jesus is that prophet. Is he the evangelist? First thing, that the, first thing that the first gospel says that Jesus ever said. This is the gospel of Mark. I know it's not first uh, in the canon, but it is. it was almost certainly first the the first gospel that was written. And the first thing he says in chapter 1 is repent and believe the good news. That's an evangelist. He's a preacher. Jesus is a preacher. Is he a shepherd? Oh, yeah. He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And is he a teacher? He sat and he taught the people. He sat and he taught the people. It's very interesting. Um, the images that we have, and, and, and I was an art student, so I studied the history of art especially the history of Western art, which means Christian art. Western meaning Europe, right? Europe, European countries, not California, Oregon, and, and Washington. In the history of Western art, the images of Jesus, the idea of Jesus as king, 
or judge. Now, are those in Scripture? Absolutely those are in Scripture. But those weren't the popular images of Jesus that were painted by the early Christian on the walls of the catacombs in Rome. The earliest images of Jesus were good shepherd and teacher. So that lets you know what the early church was thinking about these gifts. That was their mindset. Their mindset was, that's who Jesus is. He's shepherd. He's teacher. He's with us. He's ministering to us. This idea of, of Jesus being exalted and sort of above us with a stick or a rod to pop us on the head, that's not how the early church saw him. The early church was very, very dirt under the fingernails, grassroots level ministry uh, relating to each other. And this is how they see these things. Now let me give you some observations about these before I get into really uh, what, I, what, I, uh, what I think is the core of this message which follows these descriptions. First observation, there's overlap between these different offices. There's overlap. Naturally. So we can get a little bit um, maybe fastidious, a little bit detail-oriented. Like, wait, 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 hang on. Is um, like the whole pastor-teacher thing. Is, is, is that something that he's doing from the aspect of a shepherd, or is that a teacher, uh, or, uh, you know, is that being prophetic, or is that being evangelistic? That's, that's Ron Brown, right? Ron Brown, you're like, is, is he an evangelist? Is that him being an evangelist, or is that him being an, a, a prophet? Well, there's going to be overlap between these things, because they're all ministering the grace of God. They're all ministering the very persona and the anointing of who Jesus is. There's anointing that's involved here, and it's the same spirit. The Apostle Paul makes it clear. It's the same spirit, and it's the same Lord. Uh, God told Elijah, anoint Elisha prophet in your place. Anointing. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a stuff. It's a substance. It's an empowering spiritual presence that comes upon and strengthens that person for ministry, sets them apart, sanctifies them. That's that anointing. But Jesus turns around and fulfills Isaiah 61. This says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? Preach the gospel to the poor. There's an evangelist, right? So you've got prophet and evangelist, and there's overlap. Why? Because it's the same spirit and the same Lord. At the same time, these are distinct offices. Otherwise, they wouldn't say so. And one person can hold multiple offices. So that's a tricky thing because we think, well, what, what are they? Like, what is, what, what was, you know, who was that masked man? You know, who was Ron Brown when he came in here? I mean, what... What ministry is operating in? The Apostle Paul says, God has appointed me an apostle, a herald, that's an evangelist, and a teacher. An apostle, a herald, and a teacher. So Paul occupied three different offices. He operated in those three anointings, and those things worked together. So you can be dealing with somebody who's actually anointed in multiple offices at the same time. The last observation I want to make here is that there is a miracle link between these offices and what we would call those miraculous gifts or the charismatic gifts. Certain offices tend, everybody say tend, tend meaning lean toward certain gifts. The apostle Paul told the Corinthians, he said, the signs and wonders, the marks of an apostle were worked among you with great patience. 
So there's a special uh, miraculous that's associated with the pioneer work of an apostle. Uh, I remember a story that Lester Summerall told years ago about a, a young missionary woman. Single missionary woman went uh, to the islands of Indonesia and was in Indonesia, went into a village and was starting to preach the gospel. And the witch doctor, the town witch doctor, came to her and challenged her. Said, you're coming preaching another God. I'm the big kahuna here. And uh, we're going to have a showdown, you and me. We're going to see whose God is bigger. And uh, she said, okay, when do you want to do that? And he said, three days. She said, okay, I'll be here. So uh, she just went around preaching the gospel, blessing people, building relationships. He went away and fasted three days. And he came back, and they met in the, town, in the village circle, and all the people were there. And it, he says, uh, you go first. And she said, she didn't, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so she said, no, you go first. He lay down on the ground, went stiff as a board, and, and levitated three feet off the ground. So all the people are looking at her. So she went over. She put her foot on his stomach, pushed him back to the ground, and cast the devil out of him. He got saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, started speaking in other tongues, and he became the preacher there, and then he, she went to another village, right? So now that, that's an apostolic working of miracles right there, right? That's, that's something that's apostolic, right? That, there's a sign, there's a wonder that goes with that. The prophetic anointing is going to be is going to lean more revelatory. I'm going to describe next week the difference between power gifts, revelation gifts, inspiration gifts, but... but Apostles are going to tend toward power gifts, whereas prophets are going to lean toward revelation gifts. There's no question that there's power gifts that are in operation among the prophets of the Old Testament. Miracle, like miracle, miracles, like pow, healings and, 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 and tweaking of the, divine, of, the, of the natural order by the divine order, different things. But that it's, it's kind of a leaning an evangelist, I think you're going back to signs and what you're going back to power stuff that's, that's happening. They're going to lean that way. Philip in Samaria, he's working signs and wonders. He's doing these things and people are, their jaws dropping and they're listening to the word because of it. So there's that, there's that that's going on. Pastor, teacher, the gifts there tend to be more uh, discerning gifts and tend to be more inspirational gifts. Because it, it fits, it squares with that office, okay? So there, these things are, these are linked. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about what I consider to be really the crux, the core issue that's going on in this passage for us today. This other stuff's interesting, it's important for us to get our head around it, but to me, this is the core issue. We've got two major errors about these ministry gifts, these offices. I would almost call them categories of errors, and they're very simple. We either view these offices too low, or we view them too high. We view them too low or too high, and I'm going to put the too high sort of in quotation marks, and I'll explain why. 
too, first too low. How do we see these as too low? Have too low a view of these ministry gifts? Well, there's different ways to view them too low. Um, since the Reformation, so about 500 years, a little over 500 years now, um, in the Reformation, this is the Protestant Reformation, starting with Martin Luther, um, there were some things that were broken that needed to be broken. But in the midst of that, sometimes the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. And I'm saying that as a Protestant. Some, some, some of that stuff got... And so some people became kind of a law unto themselves. And one of the aspects of this is what we call a hyper-congregational view of things. Congregationalism is the idea, hey, that the congregation itself has a voice, right? That was not present in, the, in, the me, in medieval times. In the medieval times, you go to mass, you know, you sh- the Catholic mass, you shut up, you, you, you play your part, the, the, the priest is speaking in Latin, and you can't even write your own language, right, whatever it is. You, can, you, can't, you, you might be an illiterate serf. You, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you can't write, read or write English or French or German or whatever language you're speaking. You don't have any, any clue. And then you go to Mass, and the guy, he, he's up there doing the Mass in Latin. How much voice do you have? You follow what I'm saying? Now, again, you can go from one extreme to another. That's one extreme. You can go to the other extreme where you've got a hyper-congregational approach where people come down and they basically say, well, the early church didn't have any shepherds or pastors. They didn't have any pastors. They didn't have any leaders. And so we're just kind of kind of rule together. How many have heard of that sort of thing, right? Now, well-meaning, very often very well-meaning, but I've been in the midst of a congregation like that, and the result is chaos, one or the other thing happens. Number one, it dissolves. Or number two, somebody rises to the surface and takes the reins. One of those things has to happen. That approach, that sort of hyper-congregational approach, where everything, everybody says, well, we're just going to rule by sort of who's elder for the day or something, that, something along that side. I would view, in goodwill, as taking the, a too low a view of, the, of these ministry gifts, of the fivefold ministry. The fivefold ministry is in force, will be in force until Jesus comes. Because the church needs it, needs this ministry. So I think that's taking it too far. But there's another way of viewing this too low. And I think it has to do, uh, not unique to the American culture, but is especially in American culture. Especially in American culture. And that is, we have a democratic view of things. We have uh, ideas, well, I've got freedom of speech. I've got freedom of expression. I've got a right to speak and so forth. Careful, you're talking the Bill of Rights, but you're not necessarily talking the Bible there. How many love me? I'll take a poll later to see how many, how that's all about The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to describe how he lays down his rights. So here's what, here's what happens. We get in a mode, if I could hit a button, if I could hit a button and change anything about our culture, I would turn off 24-hour news. I would go back to half an hour, or maybe an hour a night. Why? Because... Because this constant stream 
across the internet and across the television is training us to see everything through a political lens. Every last thing is interpreted through a political lens. I've got news for you folks. It's good news. Not everything is politics. Politics is a small fraction of of your life. God reigns. He always did. He always will. And I'm going to tell you, we all know it matters who gets into office, but I'm going to say something else. It doesn't matter who gets into office. The church was born under emperors that were godless, that demanded worship for themselves. How many think the early church did pretty good in the first years? Did all right, right? So you're condemned to victory in Jesus. doesn't matter who gets elected in 2020, right? You're going to win, okay? You're going to win if you stay close to Jesus. But what happens is we allow that political venom to color how we see the ministry. And it, it, the losers are us. We're the ones who lose. I had students, this is one of those common questions that ministry students would ask me. Have you seen a miracle? Have you experienced miracles? I'm like, yes, I've experienced miracles. Well, you know, God provided in a pinch, right, or something like that. It's like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, God has provided in a pinch. But I've seen other miracles. I've seen creative miracles of healing. I've seen God practically raise the dead. We had a case in Ecuador where there was a man, he was a skeptic. He was a skeptic, and he, he finally came to faith right, right before we went into this intense time of prayer and fasting. And in this time of prayer and fasting, he practically put it out as a test before the Lord. I was like, ask God for whatever unbelievable, incredible, impossible situ- situation you need. His daughter, this man's daughter, grown adult daughter, was one of the top architects in that country, and she was stricken with uh, leukemia so bad they sent her home to die and she was like a walking skeleton she couldn't keep sprite down and they sent her home to die and incredibly she kept living she just kept living but she was she wasn't a believer she was emaciated she he's somebody told me you've never seen anybody like this He prayed in our miracle service. He said, God, raise her up. If you're real, I ask you to raise her up. The next day, she called him. And she said, I'm hungry. And I want to go out. So he went and he got her. He got her in her clothes. He took her to a mall where there's uh, uh, her bank, uh, a branch of her bank, and there, were, uh, there was a food court there. They said people, she walked in and people stared at her because she was, she was like a walking zombie. It was hard for her to walk because there was no flesh on her heels. But she was walking. She put on her makeup and everything, and she went. She went to the bank. They had closed her account. They thought she was dead. She went to the food court and had sausage soup. She began to eat five meals a day. God absolutely restored her. The cancer was burned from her body. God absolutely, God raised her. 
from the dead. I want to say. People ask if I've seen miracles. I've seen miracles. But I want to tell you, people ask me, why don't we see miracles here? I say this absolutely in love, but I say it. Jesus went to Nazareth. Nazareth. And it was the one place where he couldn't work the miracles. He worked other places. Familiarity breeds contempt, and you're the one who loses. It's, it's viewing them. They viewed Jesus' call and anointing too low. And because of it, the miracle link didn't work. They lost out. When you treat the ministry like a low thing, people say, why is it there? Look, I'll talk about too high in a second. But these people say third world countries, what do you, what, developing countries, you go and people, the people honor the ministry. They tremble at the ministry. They tremble at the, at the men and women of God that are in the midst. They honor it. They have respect for it. And because they have respect for it, now you say, well, isn't that dangerous? This whole thing is dangerous. The whole thing is dangerous. It's dangerous that God entrusts the salvation of your neighbor to you. He entrusts the preaching of the cross to you. Who needs the cross? How many need the cross? How many know he's called you to witness? Isn't that a little bit of a conflict? Don't you think that they have a right to say back to you, who do you think you are telling me about fixing my life when I know you? I know that you've got problems. I know you've got issues. It's the paradox of the gospel. It's the paradox of the gospel that God calls broken, needy, imperfect people, pours his anointing on them, and calls them an apostle. That's, that's a paradox. That's crazy. But it's the gospel. Hey, Jesus called Peter an apostle, and then Peter turned around and denied him. And then Jesus, you know how Jesus responded? He said, you're the boss. Now go figure that. But look what happens. Peter goes down to Joppa, and they say, please come. Tabitha has passed. They put him out of the room. He knelt down. They were trembling to have Peter there, the one who denied the Lord. Mr. Weak, Mr. Unstable, Mr. Knockneed. He knelt down and said, Tabitha, get up. And she got up. There's a link. And when we, when we view the ministry too low, we pay. We pay. And I'll tell you something else. This is between ministers, too. You could have one minister who gets in a competition mode with another, with another minister. And, and, and they get into a, a thinking that's not a, it's not a political thinking. It's a corporate thinking. It's, it's treating, it's like, hey, my tacos are tastier than your tacos. And I'm going to, you know... Can you believe that he makes his tacos that way? And I, I use real sour cream, you know, I mean, I, you know, and so forth. And this sort of thing. I mean, that's also viewing the ministry too low. And ministers do it. Ministers do it. Careful, you're on holy ground. Now, the other is to view the ministry too high. How can we view the ministry 
too high. Well, there are certainly cases, and I've seen them, where people idolize somebody, right? There have been cults, right, where somebody is idolized. Viewing the ministry too high is when the Word of God says this, and they're doing this, and they don't match, right? Follow, the Apostle Paul says, follow my example, but he also says, next phrase is, as I follow Christ, Right? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The second you get somebody who's no longer following Christ, they're no longer following the Bible. I'm not talking about your taste. I'm not talking about your, your preferences. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about chapter and verse where it doesn't square. Now, that's a different story. You're viewing the ministry too high. You're getting into an idolatry there, right, where you're not. But there's another area where we where I think we view the ministry too high, and this is where the kind of quotation marks around high come in. And this is really to the core of what the Apostle Paul is talking here. We can view the ministry through the lens that the church has fallen into and repeatedly falls into. It's the big trap about the ministry. And that trap is this, a professional clergy. The idea that we have a division between lay people and clergy. And the lay people, they just, they just come, they just listen, they, just, they have a place to go, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of coordination. But who does the ministry? The minister. Right? It's his job to preach, to teach, to evangelize, uh, to, to show love, to show care, to greet the new people, so on and so forth. So, but, you know, well, I pay the guy to do that. You know, I pay, I pay my tithes, you know, I'm a member. And so we, we, there's, this, there's this division that goes in. Now, I'm not taking away the distinction that, that there are people that are called and anointed to these offices. What I am saying is how we understand those offices to function. That is viewing the ministry as too high. In other words, it's, it's professionalizing it. It's turning it into, you're, essentially what you're doing is you're turning that person into a hired hand. Now, the workman is worth their hire. The Apostle Paul goes on and on about that. But it's very different to say the workman, the anointed person of God, is worth their hire to exercise the office of the ministry that God has called them to and to say, look, I've hired that person to do it for me. This almost goes back to the political thing, really. Because we have this idea about politicians, too. Do we all go to Washington? Do we all vote on some of the bills? Uh, maybe sometimes we wish we could or would. But that's not how our government works. We are not, in fact, a democracy. We're a republic. We're a representative democracy. So we, we vote in. We elect representatives to do our voting for us. How many know what I'm talking about? Okay? So we're like, I don't need... I mean, what if somebody... Hey, are you... Are you going to get, this is an important bill. Are you going to get to Washington, D.C. To, to go take care of it? No. Well, come on. Where's your civic sense of duty? Look, I got somebody that does that for me. Right? That's the way our government works. Careful. That works in a republic, but it doesn't work in the church. Where you're splashing over, where you're like, well, I got, I got somebody who represents me. I got somebody who does that for me. May I always represent you well. But I want to tell you this. That's not the role of a shepherd. That's not what the role of the shepherd is. Look at the text 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My God-commanded role. And I'm making it personal, but this could be anybody, anybody, any minister that you're in association with. Even a TV preacher for that matter. I have to give an account to God, not for the expectations of this culture, but for the expectations of this word. I have to give an account to God for your soul. And he's not going to say, did you represent them well? Did you make sure that you got people saved and bring them into the church so that they could, you know, and, and that's not what I'm going to help be accounted. I'm going to be account accounted for my attempts, my striving to equip you so that you can minister. That's what God's going to hold me accountable for. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. God is holding me accountable for me seeking to bring you to maturity of the faith. Maturity of the faith. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Remember what I talked about last week? changing to be like Jesus, not kind of like Jesus, but precisely like Jesus, that's what I'm saddled with. Gladly, gladly, gladly. Honor. It's an honor for me to be saddled with that. But that's Jesus' goal, and that's my goal. That's the goal of every real minister of the gospel, is to make you like Jesus. Not to have the church function like a, a, a finely tuned uh, uh, corporate machine but to have the church function like a living, breathing, healthy body that grows, that grows. The parallel passage in Colossians says that grows as Christ causes it to grow. Why? A big part of this, we want to lead people to Jesus, but we also need to shore up our defenses. He says that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by men in their deceitful scheming. I don't know about any of you, but I remember the time where I was like, oh, God, when is this going to end? I remember I was a first-term missionary in Ecuador. When is this going to end? I was dealing with all these cults that had infiltrated Ecuador that were leading people astray, all this wickedness, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, when is this ever going to stop? And the Lord showed me as I looked in the Word. Part of the role of the church, the task of the church from beginning until we see Jesus face to face is fighting doctrinal deception. It's part of the role. It's, it's always going to be here. Now Jesus makes it very clear toward the end it's going to get worse. But if you read carefully, every single book in the New Testament mentions false teachers or opponents of the ministry one way or the other. Every single, every single one without exception. So if you're, if you're, this is what I, again, talked about last week. Nostalgia can twist our vision of things. We're like, oh, it used to be so good, and now there's all these false teaching. Oh, it used to be. When, please, pray tell. When wasn't there false teaching? Oh, back, back in the glory days of, back in the glory days of, of, the, of the previous century, not the 20th century, but the 19th century, when people prayed and went to church. Yeah, yeah. They prayed and went to church. That's when Mormonism was born. That's when Jehovah's Witnesses were born. That's when we're talking about a group called the Shakers, you know, which weren't as goofy as the ones I just mentioned, but they were pretty goofy. 
They don't, how, many have, how many have heard of the Shakers? How many have not heard of the Shakers? You've never heard of the Shakers. The Shakers were a subgroup of the Quakers. So you got people who quake, and then you got people who shake, right? The Shakers, but the Shakers were founded by an illiterate woman who believed that the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was sexual relationships. Now you know why you don't, haven't heard of the Shakers. <laughs> they died off. <laughs> they didn't have any kids. <laughs> Oops. I mean, there's, uh, there's been goofy, strange doctrine from the very beginning. People have been trying. People, people were twisting what Jesus said before he was crucified and glorified. People have been doing this stuff. So, <laughs> so God has given the ministry so that under fire we gain ground. Right? If you're waiting for the ideal moment, oh, if, 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 if so-and-so would just get elected, and if so, this such, thus and so law would just get passed, or thus and so law would just get repealed, and, and, our, and our, our society could just position itself and get in this right place, then, we, we'd, be able to grow, then we'd be able to win people for Jesus. That day ain't never going to come, because it never existed in the first place. The church, the glory of the church is that Jesus has given his very spirit to the ministry so that we can advance in the heat of battle. That under fire, in the midst of lies and distortions and and slanders against the truth and the word of God, we gain ground and we gain souls. But the whole thing is that we recognize that we are built up and we become part of the ministry. This, is, this speaks to this one passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this one passage, this one verse. This is, this is Peter speaking, uh, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he's called you. That's why he's made us a priesthood. That who might proclaim? That we might proclaim. That we might proclaim. So when the ministry comes to you, understand its role. Understand, hey, they're trying to build me up so that I can, I can take the fire. I want to ask Pastor Joseph to come. Praise be to God. Why don't we all stand in the presence of the Lord? Praise be to God. Father, we praise you today. We praise you today. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us of yourself. We thank you, Lord God, that you have ordained these gifts in your wisdom. We don't always understand, but God, by faith, we believe and we submit. Father, right now, I ask you to look upon the heart of every hearer in this place. God, you know that which impedes us, that which we strive against. You know the challenge it is in this dark world to represent you, to proclaim the gospel, and to do the work of the ministry. But God, Our hearts want to obey. We want to be used of you. Help us be used of you. God, I pray. Saints, I ask you to lift your voices. Begin to pray for yourself. 
right now. Begin to pray for yourself. Nobody knows you like you. Pray for yourself right now. Pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. Our days are numbered. You know the number of them. From the youngest of us to the oldest, you know our days. God, we ask that you would use every day. Every day. For glory. For your name. We ask God that you'd use every day, Lord, to help us win a soul. Win a soul. Talk to people about Jesus. Represent Jesus. Shine Jesus. God, work with us. Help us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name that the ministries of the Holy Spirit would be manifest in this church. God, that you would help us to receive that ministry. Your purposes be accomplished. Just ask you to raise your hands right now. I just want to bless you. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. I pray that the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher would be loosed in your life. God would bless you and give you great grace to overcome and to be strong and to minister in his name in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Be blessed. Be blessed today. Kind of a teaching day. Be blessed and go in the name.